Well, we are continuing to talk about the rule and reign of Christ this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the subject is the future resurrection of the Christian. And our great hope that we have as uh, Christians who have been united to God by faith in Christ, our great hope that we have for resurrection in the future, that this life isn't all that there is, but that there's more. And in the future, our bodies will be totally redeemed and restored. This mortality will put on immortality. We'll find out later in the chapter. Uh, but that's the big theme of 1 Corinthians 15. Yet we've come across this section in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul mentions the second coming of Jesus Christ. He mentions the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He talks about the end when Christ will hand over the kingdom to the Father and be subject to the Father. And so, in this theme, there's a lot to see. There's a lot to know. There's a lot to put together from the rest of Scripture. And so we're doing biblical theology on the kingdom of Christ as a bit of a diversion from 1 Corinthians 15, though it is all tied together. And by the end of the sermon today, we will be back in that chapter. But we started it last week, and we're going to continue it this week. I left you with this thought last week that the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is ruling and reigning over us right now. As Christians, as members of His church, we have been transferred into His kingdom. Not a kingdom, but His kingdom. Jesus Christ is our King. He is the one we appeal to as King in the church. It's, his kingship has been actualized in a spiritual sense in the church. And we find out in Colossians, that Colossians 1.13 is where we find that phrase, we are in the kingdom of the Son. We find out in Colossians 2 that in the death of Christ, He triumphed over the principalities and powers. That through His death, Christ proved victorious over the evil spirits of the age and even over Satan himself. We find out from Jesus' own words at the end of Matthew's gospel that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is absolutely, totally God in the fullest sense. He is king. Yet his authority has not been manifested as it will be in the future. There is more to be revealed in the earth, as he actualizes his kingship in this physical domain. The son's kingship will be imposed on the earth, and he's going to exercise that dominion where Adam failed. I discussed that a little bit last week, where Adam was given the mandate to go out and subdue the earth, and he failed. Well, Jesus Christ is going to subdue the earth. He is going to fulfill that duty as the last Adam. He is going to do it. And Hopefully you're there in Psalm 2, but before we read that, I want to read to you our passage just so this is fresh in your mind. Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. He's making a contrast between Adam and Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. It's an amazing, amazing picture of where this is all headed. Where is this all going? The son's going to have a kingdom. He's going to reign until all the enemies are destroyed. He's going to hand the kingdom over to the Father, be in subjection himself to the Father, and God will be all in all. That's an amazing, beautiful picture of where this is all going. But this kingdom that the son is going to have on the face of the earth, like I said, will be a physical manifestation on the earth, not just a spiritual kingdom. And it will be in accordance with promises that we find in the Old Testament. Again, before we read Psalm 2, I want to read you a quote from Charles Ryrie about the future kingdom of Christ. Ryrie says, Why does there need to be an earthly kingdom? Because he must be triumphant in the same arena where he was seemingly defeated. His rejection by the rulers of this world was on earth. His exaltation must also be on this earth. And so it shall be when he comes again to rule this world in righteousness. And we're about to look at a few passages that talk about this future rule of Christ, starting with the second psalm. And we're going to read the whole psalm. It's 12 short verses. But consider the future reign of Jesus Christ as it's described here. Psalm 2.1, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The earth will become the Son's possession in every sense. He will manifest a kingship, a rule over the face of the earth, over all the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron out of Zion. He will dwell in Zion physically on the earth and rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is the same language that's used in Revelation 19 that talks about the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back, the rider on the horse, out of his mouth comes, down a, comes out a sword to strike down the nations. And there will be a rod of iron with which he will shatter the nations. When Jesus returns, he will set up a physical kingdom and rule the nations from Zion, from sea to sea, with a rod of iron. That's a promise in Psalm 2 of what's coming. 
And did you notice it's also a warning for the kings? The fact that this is going to happen, that the kings will have to answer to the son. Did you also notice that the son is explicitly mentioned? The kings will have to answer to the son, so they need to take heed now, lest he become angry with them. We are to call the kings of our day to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to submit to his authority because all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Well, not only is this going to happen, his dealings with the kings of the earth, there's more that will happen at his coming. Turn with me to Jeremiah 23 on your way back to the New Testament. Jeremiah chapter 23, starting in verse 5. This is an amazing passage speaking of what the Son will do in His kingdom, what will happen upon the Lord's second coming. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 5. The Lord says through the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And listen to this. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. There's an amazing promise. There will be material, spiritual, and national restoration of Israel. They've been scattered among all the nations, all these different places where they've been scattered. They will come back to their own soil, and they will be restored by God there. But it's not just Israel who will be ruled over by Christ. Turn with me forward to the book of Daniel. Go forward just a couple books. Go past Ezekiel to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Starting at verse 13, Daniel 7.13. This is a, an amazing vision that this prophet had that's preserved here for us. In Daniel 7, verse 13, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What an amazing picture. The one like the Son of Man, the Son of God Himself, we'll see later how Jesus connects Himself to this passage. He is given an everlasting dominion, a physical kingdom over real people, over real nations, and notice that it is indestructible. This passage says that His kingdom is indestructible. No one will prevail over His kingdom. And Jesus said this prophecy would come to fruition at His second coming. He linked it to when He returns again. Well, Jesus does indeed teach us more about His kingdom 
in the Gospels, and he speaks of this kingdom in different senses. And so go ahead and turn to Matthew 25. We'll be there in a few minutes. But I do want to show you some other passages as you turn there where Jesus talked about his coming kingdom. And in the first sense, he talked about his kingdom as being already present. In Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus is engaged in a discussion. He was questioned by the Pharisees as to notice the nature of this conversation when the kingdom of God was coming. That's what they wanted to know. That's a good question, right? When is the kingdom of God coming? Jesus answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Well, what's it coming with? Jesus says, they, they won't say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, here's the twist, the kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus tells them. So he tells them, Quit looking to the future and look who's in front of you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. If you remember the first words of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4, it's recorded for us. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in a very real sense, where Jesus is, there the kingdom is. Where Jesus is, there you have the kingdom. And even more than that, those who are united to Him are kingdom citizens now on the earth. Even though Jesus is not here physically ruling and reigning, He does have a kingdom on the earth, again, His church, and we are growing. He spoke of this in Matthew 13. If you remember, there's several parables in Matthew 13, but He compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. You remember this one? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of the, those seeds that you guys toss out. And yet, it grows and grows and grows, and the birds come and nest in its branches. The kingdom of heaven starts off really small, and then it grows. And you could say, just today, by this group that we have here, how many more than just Jesus and 12 disciples? And then you consider all the Christians meeting all throughout the world, and the kingdom of heaven has grown. Right after that, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a little yeast, and he put it in with, with the dough, and it rises, it grows. So kingdom citizens are growing in the kingdom in number over time before Jesus comes back and establishes a physical kingdom. And in the meantime, of course, a little side tangent within our side tangent here, we are to be kingdom-minded stewards. If we are kingdom citizens now, if we are a part of God's work in the world, growing the kingdom of heaven in the earth, we are to be kingdom-minded in the way that we live, aren't we? We are to be stewards of what God has given us as we have the hope of the gospel. We have the hope of resurrection life. Just a couple of chapters after Luke 17, where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. In Luke 19, Jesus gave the parable of the nobleman who went away to inherit a kingdom, and he gave his servants minas, and he, he gave them to them and said, you know, make good on them, grow them while I'm away. Well, the nobleman goes and he inherits his kingdom and he comes back and he finds out what they did with these minas that he left behind. And they enter into his kingdom and there are certain uh, privileges or certain roles of authority that are given to these people based on how they stewarded what God had given them. And so in the same sense, we are stewards for Christ as he's gone away and soon we will inherit a kingdom with him to reign with him in the kingdom but we are to steward what He's given us in the present. 
Yet all of these things are not the fulfillment of his kingdom. Yes, he said, the kingdom of God is right in front of you to the Pharisees. Yes, he said that he would go away and the kingdom of heaven would grow. He did say that. But that is not yet the fulfillment of what it will be. And if you're in Matthew 25, look down at verse 31 with me. We're going to see where Jesus spoke of a future physical rule on the face of the earth when he returns. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? All the nations gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When Jesus returns, it will be a physical return. He's not returning as a spirit, but he's returning in bodily form. He will have an actual right and an actual left, and they will sit on his right and his left. And he's going to sit on his glorious throne. Did you catch that in the first verse I read, verse 31? He will sit on his glorious throne. He is going to establish his kingdom upon his return. What an amazing day that will be. Go over just one chapter, Matthew 26, toward the end of the chapter, verse 63. Matthew 26, verse 63, it says, this is Jesus being questioned by Caiaphas. Verse 63, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus quoting here? You might notice that this is a, an Old Testament quotation. He's referring back, he's hearkening back to Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming. He's referencing this amazing vision that the prophet had where the Son of Man was given this dominion over all the nations. He was going to rule all the nations, all people, every tribe, every tongue. They would serve him. Jesus is saying at his second coming, when he comes again, he will establish this rule on the face of the earth. When Jesus comes back, his kingdom will be set up from Zion. You think of the, the great kings of history. There have been many notable kings and rulers throughout history. Uh, Charlemagne is one of them. Over a thousand years ago, Charlemagne ruled and reigned. He was of the Franks. And he was a great conqueror. He expanded his kingdom while he was in rule. He conquered the Saxons in the area that we know now today as Germany. He conquered the, the Lombards that were down there in Italy. He expanded the kingdom. There was great growth in his reign. But perhaps the most famous moment or the most dramatic moment of Charlemagne's reign came whenever Pope Leo III crowned him Holy Roman Emperor. It was Christmas Day, the year 800. It's a long time ago, wasn't it? Christmas Day. He came in, it was for Mass, and he was crowned by the Pope to be the Holy Roman Emperor. And it's hard to imagine a man who had more power in the world at that time than Charlemagne. An amazing kingdom that took up a major portion of, of Europe, and now the Pope himself is referring to him as 
the first, it depends on how you look at history, but perhaps the first ever Holy Roman Emperor. He sought to continue to expand the kingdom, and as he did so, he Christianized people that he would conquer. He would have forced conversions in his siege of different regions, and as he would conquer certain peoples, they would be baptized whether they wanted to be or not, and he Christianized his empire. But do you know what happened to Charlemagne? He died. He's not around. Do you know what happened to his kingdom? Well, he left it to his successors. Eventually, it was divided up, and where's his kingdom today? We no longer refer to that major portion of Europe and France and Germany and Italy as Charles the Great or Charlemagne's kingdom. It faded away. His rule and his kingdom faded away. But what are we learning here about the Son of God and His kingdom? It will be utterly comprehensive. It will be absolutely effective. And it will never fade away. It's an indestructible kingdom. This is what Daniel's vision says. It's indestructible. Nothing will happen to this kingdom that will threaten its success. It will conquer over anyone who rises against it. And Jesus Himself will rule and reign as the perfect King who will never die. He will never leave His kingdom to another people, but He will be the one reigning, and He will do so perfectly. The full expression of this kingdom, of course, is future, and I want to give you two more passages before we get back to 1 Corinthians 15. Psalm 110, a very important psalm in the Scripture. It comes up several times in the New Testament. Psalm 110, the first two verses, I want to just read them for you. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. It's an amazing promise that the Lord said to my Lord. Isn't that interesting how David starts that phrase? It's the Father speaking to the Son. We understand it. And the Son is given rule from Zion with the scepter to rule in the midst of His enemies. And this psalm is referred to in Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read this to you also. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13. It says, But He, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, that's amazing, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. For sins, He's ascended to God the Father in a resurrected body. He is sitting at the right hand of God because His work is finished. He doesn't need to stand and perform any more services. He's finished the work, and He's waiting, waiting until the time when His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. Well, that's amazing. I know I'm giving you a lot of theology. There's a lot of a lot of doctrine here this morning, and you're doing good. You're doing all right. I didn't even tell you to like pop a mint in or gum or whatever. You're staying awake and staying alert. That's good. There's one crucial thing that I want to hammer home as we wrap up this biblical doctrine of the Son's future kingdom, and that's the consideration that this kingdom is an intermediate kingdom. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15 with me if you haven't already, and where we'll be today is in verses 23 and following. But this kingdom is not a forever kingdom. This kingdom is an intermediate kingdom that will be transitioned into God's universal reign over the earth. 
Let's look at these verses again. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. Speak in His own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So I just want to you know, push home this, this idea that this kingdom of the sons will be handed over to the Father. And when that happens, Christ Himself will be in subjection to the Father. This kingdom has a starting point, of course, in the future, but it also has a transition point, doesn't it? The handing over point when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. And there are all kinds of things to note about this time. And I wonder if some of you are are thinking, well, how long will this kingdom last? (laughs) And so we better answer that question because we're saying it hasn't started yet and we're saying it's going to be handed over. Well, how long is this kingdom going to last? Well, this kingdom will last for a thousand years as we're told in Revelation chapter 20. And you can turn there if you'd like, but I'll read it to you. Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6, when John had just talked about the second coming of Christ, that he's coming back, the rider on a horse, he will return. And the next event that happens then after he strikes down his enemies, in Revelation 20, he says, then, the next event, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Several times in this passage, we see that phrase, a thousand years. After the coming of Christ, when He returns to the earth, He establishes a kingdom in which Satan is bound, and this kingdom lasts for a thousand years. And you saw some resurrection talk in there too. You see how John is weaving together the the theme of the Son's future kingdom with the resurrection of the dead, just as Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15. The reason we're talking about the kingdom is because Paul, while talking about the Christian's future resurrection, is talking about the Son's kingdom. These things are together. They link together. And Revelation 20 is a very relevant passage for us as we study this. Christ's kingdom will last for a thousand years. And this is not the eternal state. This is not where we will ultimately end up. But this is an intermediate kingdom. Of course, before Satan is released, death is finally abolished once for all, and we enter into the new heaven and new earth. It's an intermediate Messiah-governed kingdom with a definite, fixed amount of time. Now, if you're being a keen Bible student, 
You may be looking at 1 Corinthians 15 and say, now wait a second. In verse 23, it says Christ is coming back. He's the first one to resurrect. He's the first fruits. After that, verse 23, those who are Christ at His coming, and then comes the end. It doesn't say, then comes a thousand years, and then the end. <laughs> it says, He comes back, and then the end. Well, what do we make of, of this? Now, this is the part where if you do have mints, you should definitely pop one in because it's uh, going to be pretty dry for the next five to ten minutes. I'll give you a timeline, okay? Uh, you can check out if you'd like, but it's going to get a little dry. It's important to understanding the passage, but you can just, uh, you know, do what you'd like. There, there is no mention of a length of a kingdom between the second phase and the third phase, as Paul lists it out here, the second phase being, second phase being Christ's coming and the third being the end. Well, there are two words that are used that talk about the succession of time here. Look again at verse 23. It says, Christ the firstfruits, after that, and you can underline or highlight or put parentheses around the phrase, after that, those who are Christ at His coming, and then, parentheses around the word, then. We have two adverbs that are used here that talk about a transition of time. And we know that between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of Christians at His coming, there has been nearly 2,000 years currently, right? Notice how Paul says, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those at His coming. Well, that wasn't very immediate. That still hasn't happened yet. We've been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. John, at the end of Revelation, says, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And for us, it's been a very long time but this is all in the Lord's calendar. The other word is a synonym to this word. It's the word then. The words in Greek are epeta and eta. They are very similar words. They're not only synonyms, but they're also homonyms. They sound alike. And we note that, yes, Paul is giving us a succession of events, but he's not giving us an immediate succession. The first fruits, Jesus Christ, was raised. And sometime, at least 2,000 years after that, or about 2,000 years, then there will be the resurrection of Christians. And then, after He's established His kingdom, and we know that's 1,000 years, then comes the end. There's not an immediate succession between events, but there's actually room for different events to happen before the next event occurs. You can see this with me in the same chapter. Look back up at verse 3 with me, 1 Corinthians 15. Now look at verse 3. Paul uses these words in the same way earlier in the chapter. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas. Then, there's our word, to the twelve. After that, there's our other word, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then, there's one of our words again, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, these events did happen in succession. Paul is telling us one thing did happen before the other, but these did not all happen on the same day, did they? These did not all happen back to back, but there was time in between. In fact, our word for then, when Paul says in our passage today, then comes the end, that word for then is used in 1 Timothy when Paul's talking about the creation of Adam and Eve. Paul says, Adam was created first and then Eve. 
How much time existed between the creation of Adam and then Eve? We don't know, but we know that it had to be enough time for Adam, of course, to be doing his garden work. He was commissioned to work and keep the garden. We also know that it was enough time for God to bring all the animals to him, and he had to name all the animals. That happened before the creation of Eve. There was a significant amount of time. And so we see here in the context of 1 Corinthians 15 that there's also time for certain things to take place when Jesus returns. There's not an immediate return and then handing the kingdom over to the Father. Again, we know that there's been 2,000 years just about between the first and second event, and there will be 1,000 between the second and the third. There must be enough time, of course, for Christ to abolish all rule and authority. That's what He's going to do when He comes back. How long will that take? A thousand years. He's going to abolish all rule and authority and power. We know the details of this kingdom, and we know that it takes time for these details to come to fruition. I want to read to you a quote based on or about this specific issue from Matthew Waymeyer. He writes, "...because Christ must abolish all His enemies after His second coming, and yet prior to the arrival of the end, the second coming and the end cannot occur at the same time." there must be at least some gap of time separating them. And again, Revelation 20 tells us that gap of time is a thousand years. Furthermore, we know what we will be doing in this kingdom. Last week I mentioned this passage, but I'll mention it again in 1 Corinthians 6. What does it say earlier in the book that we'll be doing? We'll judge the world. We will judge angels. In this coming kingdom, there will be at least enough time for us to co-reign with Christ as we judge the world and judge angels. In 2 Timothy 2.12, it says that we will reign with Him. So before He hands over the kingdom to the Father, there's a future time in which we will reign with the Son in His kingdom. That will take some time. In James chapter 2, verse 5, it says we will be heirs of the kingdom with Him. We are co-heirs with Christ of the coming kingdom. In Revelation 5.10, again, it says, we will reign with Him in His kingdom. This is talking about specifically Jesus Christ's kingdom when He comes back and establishes His glorious throne. He sits on His glorious throne. We will reign with Him. So there must be enough time for that to take place. So Jesus Christ will initiate an earthly kingdom, and He will continue in this kingdom until all of His enemies have been destroyed as He rules the nations with a rod of iron. Now, I want to come back and, and consider the main theme, unless we get too far into the weeds, and perhaps it's way too late for that. But the main theme of 1 Corinthians 15, of course, is the Christian's future resurrection. So let's see if we can fit all this together. If we're going to reign with Christ in this kingdom, if we are going to be physically present with Christ, if He's going to have a physical right and left, if He's going to set up thrones and the disciples are going to sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, how are we going to get there? Well, let's not forget Paul's big overarching point. We will be resurrected. These bodies will come out of the grave and will go into a future messianic earthly kingdom. Christians will be raised before the kingdom. And again, our text, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at His coming. And then we understand there's His kingdom leading to the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. 
Christ is the first fruits. And then when he comes again in the clouds, this is what 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, he will come to the clouds and those who are dead in Christ will rise first and will meet the Lord in the air. Those who are alive will be caught up with them and will meet the Lord in the air. Won't that be a glorious day? 1 Thessalonians 4 says, encourage one another with these words. You're going to meet the Lord in the air one day, Christian. <laughs> I hope that encourages you. So Christ is the first fruits, then those who are His at His coming. And then as we talked about in Sunday school today, the day of the Lord will begin. You've got to fit the day of the Lord into all this too, right? And so if you were in Sunday school today, you can take your notes and synthesize all these things together. There will be a time of judgment on Israel during that time. And at the end of that period, there will be more resurrections because in the day of the Lord, people are dying and some of them are dying as believers in Jesus Christ and they must enter the kingdom too. And they have to do so with a resurrected body. So this first resurrection has several stages. But all the resurrected will go into the kingdom of the Son for a thousand years to reign with Him. And Christ will win the final battle when Satan is released at the end of the thousand years. Satan will not win. If you're someone who doesn't like spoiler alerts, spoiler alert, Jesus wins. Okay, And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the Father, there will be a final resurrection at the end. Those who have died rejecting God, they will be resurrected and they will go right into their judgment at the great white throne, Revelation 20 tells us. But the Christians will be resurrected to reign with Christ, and that's Paul's main point in this passage. Why doesn't Paul go into all those details, you might ask? <laughs> well, he had one point, and his point wasn't, here's your end times chart. Paul wasn't giving us an end times chart, but I gave you one today uh, with last week because there's so much to understand from all of the Scriptures. God has given us an entire book with all sorts of information, and I wanted to piece this together for us in a way, hopefully, that's understandable and helpful. But the big idea is that Jesus wins, death will be defeated in every way, and once death is abolished, look down at verse 26 with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy will, will be abolished, and that enemy is death. Once death is abolished, the kingdom culminates in a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. The phrase that's used in verse 24 about the end, um, this is the last time I'll take us back to verse 24. I know we need to get to 28, so I, I, I'm not stalling. There's one more thing to see. When Paul says, then comes the end, this is the, the word telos in Greek. It's a word that means completion or maturity. I think I mentioned last week, I don't want us to think of the end as the last slide on a movie we're watching, and then, you know, you take the DVD out or whatever, and you're done. It's not like that. But the end means Christ has brought it to completion. Christ has accomplished what He has set out to accomplish. The kingdom has matured. The, the kingdom has reached its final state, His kingdom. And then we will transition into the eternal state from there, into God's universal kingdom. Well, what is the Father doing while the Son rules for a thousand years? If the Son is on the face of the earth and all the focus is on His kingdom, what is God the Father doing? Verses 27 and 28 teach us what's going on. I'll read these two verses again. In verse 27, it says, "...for He has put all things in subjection..." under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself 
also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. What is the Father doing while the Son rules for a thousand years? He is subjecting all things to the Son. He is bringing all things into subjection of the Son. It's an amazing thought that God the Father and God the Son work in such a way. We don't have details listed here of the Spirit's work during this time, but no doubt the Holy Spirit is at work too in the same way He's at work now, bringing all things into subjection under the Son's kingship. Notice that the second half of verse 27 and the second half of verse 28 talk about the Father is bringing all things into subjection for the Son's sake. And this is the picture that we get in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, John is upset because there's no one seemingly worthy around who can open the scroll. There's no one worthy around. And then comes one like a lamb who was slain. He's worthy. And it says that he is going to rule with his saints on the earth. This is the picture of all things being in subjection to the Son on the earth totally. He is worthy to reclaim the world in a kingdom of his own. In verse 27 of our text, there's an interesting quotation from the Old Testament. In my Bible, quotations from the Old Testament are in all caps. It's that first part of verse 27. Quoting Psalm 8, it says, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 is about God's work in creation and making man a little lower than the angels. In Psalm 8, he, of course, affirms this idea that man has been created by God, and we know that man is created in the image of God, and yet man, for the time being, is a little lower than the angels. Those who are redeemed and co-reign with Christ in His kingdom will judge the angels. But for the time being, we are a little lower than the angels, aren't we? You, you feel that in your body, I assume, that you're not necessarily angelic. <laughs> uh, well, we just had Valentine's Day. If someone told you that you were angelic, that person was lying to you. I'm sorry, you're not there yet. You're a little lower than the angels. Well, that psalm is all about how God has made man a steward of the earth and the, the creation is in subjection to man, and that's the way man is to go about subduing the earth. This is the mandate given to Adam. You go, be fruitful, multiply, cultivate the ground, bring all things into subjection. Yet we know that because of the curse, because Adam fell, we can never do that perfectly. Thorns and thistles, sweat of your brow, you can never bring the earth into full, perfect subjection, can you? If you would have seen the garden I attempted to grow this past year, you would agree with me that we just can't bring things into full subjection. We have a picture in our head of what it should be, but we can't quite bring it about, can we? So this verse is about how that's man's calling, is to, is to go out and subject all things in creation under his own feet. And yet Paul here takes this passage, and who's he applying it to? Jesus Christ. Again, this command that was given to Adam, this mandate to go out and, and to have a godly culture ruling and reigning in dominion with the authority God has given you. Man can't do it. Adam couldn't do it. And yet Jesus Christ is going to do it. Jesus Christ is the ultimate capital M man. He is going to fulfill every area where everyone has fallen in their stewardship of the earth. All things will be in subjection to him. When he has put all things 
and subjection under his feet. Back in those times, kings would be enthroned in a lofty state. They'd be high and lifted up. And when they would conquer another kingdom, you know, they, the henchmen wouldn't just go out and kill the other rulers. That's no fun. You can't just kill them and that would be it. The rulers would be brought in, in custody, and they would be brought before their new king. He's high and lifted up, and they would be placed under the king's feet. And sometimes, just to, of course, prove a point, the king could place his foot on the neck of those he's conquered. And there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to place his foot on death's neck. He is going to abolish all enemies, all rulers, all authorities, all powers, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. Death itself will become subject to the Son, who will manifest a perfect kingdom on the face of the earth. And after that, the Son Himself will be in subjection to the Father. But this isn't the Father placing His foot on the neck of the Son. There's perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect peace between the persons of the Godhead. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit will show us perfect, absolute perfect subjection as the Son hands over the kingdom to the Father. The glorified God-man will submit to the Father, this text tells us, and God's kingdom will be restored. God's kingdom will be totally in order as we move into the eternal state and enjoy God forever and ever. A couple of quotes that I want to share with you. John MacArthur puts it very simply, as he often does. Here is the culmination. Christ turns over the restored world to God his Father, who sent him to recover it. I love that. Gordon Fee, another one. The one and only God stands as both the source and goal of all that is. Now that is an amazing phrase. Just take that phrase and chew on that for the rest of the day. He's the source and goal of all that is. And since God has set in motion the final destruction of death, when that occurs, God will be all in all. All of God's enemies will be subjected to Christ so that in turn, He may be made subject to God, who, it turns out, has been the one who subjected all things to Christ. What a beautiful picture. God is doing an amazing work. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, restoring this place. And Jesus Christ, as the last Adam, is accomplishing what the first Adam never could. Perfect peace, perfect rule, perfect dominion, perfect subjection on the face of the earth. And this doesn't mean that the sun ceases to reign. I want to make clear that too. This isn't like the sun rules for a thousand years, gives it to the Father, and we don't know what happened to Jesus after that. He just, he goes into hiding. That's not the case. He will continue to reign. And in fact, in Revelation eleven fifteen, there's a very explicit statement that tells us as much. The seventh angel sounded, this is the seven trumpets, at the seventh trumpet, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. What an amazing thought. So, go ahead and close your Bibles and look up here. I want us to end with a, with a moment of real-life application. What does this mean for your life now? What does this mean? All this, I just made you like get lost in all kinds of theology. I know, I just a lot today. 
But what does this mean for tomorrow? What kind of bearing does this have when you punch the clock Monday morning or whatever you do on Mondays or for the rest of your day to day? What does this mean? Well, we need to recognize as Christians, we have the hope of the world, don't we? All those things that we just discussed, all these things that are in your future, there is nothing bad for you in the future. There is not one thing for you to dread in the future. You have a blessed hope, Scripture says. You have absolute hope that no man can take away. No one can reverse what God has done in your life. But He has put a calling on you, and that calling is going to culminate in an amazing co-reign with your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you will then, after the time of reigning on the face of the earth, judging the world, judging angels with Christ, you're going to be in a new heaven and a new earth with God forever and ever. What a, an amazing picture of bliss that is. So you need to feel that. Not just know it as words on paper. You need to know it here in your heart too. Because it's really simple for us to kind of put this into a category of eschatology on some doctrinal statement and say we believe that's what's going to happen. And that's good. There's a place for that. But do you feel in your heart that what you have in your future is a beautiful existence with your Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I want you to feel that. And I want you to understand that even though you've not been resurrected yet, even though you will go into the, into the ground, your body will remain there, and you will be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5 says, you will immediately upon death be in the presence of the Lord, and your body won't be resurrected until God's timing, sometime future, don't you know that right now you have resurrection power? In Romans 8, it talks about all creation's groaning. We're all suffering the effects of sin in this world, aren't we? We feel it every day, not just in our own body, but again, going back to those relationship tensions and, and the issues that we have with, with creation. The, the governments, you, you look at the news and you read about what's going on in world governments. And you think about all the evil people out there that are affecting your life and you're dealing with all of this and you're groaning. All of creation is groaning. Yet, the one who raised Christ from the dead is giving life to your mortal bodies here and now. That's wild. That, I mean, that, that's a wild thought. The one who brought Jesus out of the tomb is empowering your every breath. As the Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you who gives life to your body, spiritual life. You have the power of God over death in you right now. It has not been seen what it will be. I mean, there's coming a day when it will all come to fruition. But right now, you have the first fruits, don't you? God has given you His Spirit as a pledge or as a down payment. Again, I need you to, to feel that. Not just agree to some written statement, but to know, to recognize you have the living God. 100% of the living God is in you if you've been united to Christ by faith. And now I want you to consider how God would use you to participate in His kingdom work now. One thing I've been fascinated by through this study is thinking about what life will be like in this future kingdom. It's going to be an amazing thing to see Jesus Christ face to face, 
to see His rule and reign brought to bear on all the nations. That's an amazing thought. That's a, that's a glorious, magnificent thought. We, we need to reserve those types of adjectives for this kind of stuff. That's a magnificent thought, that He would be ruling and reigning on the earth. What kind of conversations are we going to be having in that kingdom? Have you thought about that? What kind of things are we going to be pointing out? What will catch our eye? How will we think through things, having physically seen the reality of our Lord's victory over death? You know, we have the opportunity to begin that type of work, that type of of thinking now. We don't have to wait until later to have a kingdom mindset. And this is something that I think quite often premillennialists like us who are waiting for the future return of Christ for this, this physical kingdom, we can get accused of just having an escapist mentality that, well, this, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's just wait for the rapture and get beamed out of here. Now, part of that comes from a good place. You know this world isn't your home. Amen. But you're here. God hasn't taken you out of it. Do you think He has a purpose? You better believe He does. That mustard seed is, has, is growing, and you're a part of that. You're involved in that. That yeast is having an impact on the dough. It's growing, it's rising, and you're a part of that. The way that we think and consider the things of our world, the, the things we put our, our time and, and efforts to, that matters. That absolutely matters. Don't wait until the kingdom to get kingdom-minded. Be kingdom-minded now. And I would encourage you to read Jesus' parable in Luke 19 that I mentioned earlier, those minas that, he, that the nobleman gave to his servants. It matters what they do in the meantime. While the nobleman is waiting to inherit his kingdom, it matters what his servants do. It matters what we do in this life in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for His honor, for His glory that His kingdom may grow and grow. How would He have you to think about this world in light of your future reign with Him? That's a question that will keep you busy for lunch, huh? You can think about that today over your bowl of soup or whatever you're having. That's the, that's the kind of conversation we should be having. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the promise that this world is not all that there is. We thank You that there is coming a day when we will see you face to face, when we will reign with you, when we will inherit the kingdom as co-heirs of Christ. God, we thank you that even now you have made us a kingdom and priests to God, that we have this calling on our lives in the here and now. Give us, we ask, just a deep desire to see your kingdom come and that it would begin with us as you work in us and through us that it would start with us, that there would be kingdom conversations taking place, that we would have kingdom thought processes as we analyze the news and as we think about what is most important in this life. God, give us a glorious vision of not only who you are in the here and now, but what you're going to do in the future, that we would constantly have that in front of us to affect change in our lives today for your glory. It's all about you. It's all about our King, Jesus Christ. May he be lifted up in each one of our hearts. May we see this kingdom grow even here in Payson, Utah, and the surrounding area. 
Just give us amazing encouragement by your Spirit, we ask, for your glory. Amen.